Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. You can find it on page 531 and there in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Now this morning, we're actually going to finish a sermon that I started last week. This is how bad I'm getting, right? I can't even finish a sermon in a Sunday. I've got to drag it over into two different Sundays. But uh, the reason for that is because we're looking at this huge section, this chapter and a half from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, all the way through the end of chapter 7. And it covers a very, very important topic. This passage is a tale of adultery and seduction and the promise of forbidden love. And though this text was written almost 3,000 years ago, it's a story that's still played out every single day in countless minds, on the pages of thousands of books, on innumerable television screens throughout the world, and in an untold multitude of men and women in their real lives. It's an alluring tale. It's going to draw you in with promises of passion and pleasure and infidelity. But as soon as you're coaxed in by this lure of exotic and erotic and forbidden love, the door slams shut and you find yourself caught in a trap that will cost you your life. Friends, I do not want us to be deceived by our culture. As much as the world has labored to liberate sex from what it would call oppressive, archaic, moral boundaries, from natural physical consequences, as much as it has tried to argue against right and wrong for what is consensual or what is agreed upon, as much as it has attempted to broaden and open up definitions of sex and marriage to trade truth for feelings, gender for choices, we simply cannot ignore the obvious. That sexual folly is destructive. As much as we want to try to ignore that, as much as we want to try to dismiss that and push that away, we can't deny the fact that sex is enslaving rather than satisfying. It leads to death and not to life. It corrodes culture. It weakens society. It devastates relationships. And it tears at our very souls. The wisdom given to us in this passage is not meant to enslave us under harsh, archaic, old-fashioned rules and regulations that deny you your greatest affections and your most basic needs. It's given to free you from the prison of sexual sin and its ensuing sentence of death. It's meant to give you life. It's meant to give you love. It's meant to give you true and lasting intimacy. Not some deadly or seductive imitation. And so the main idea of this passage is the same one we looked at last week. God's wisdom guards our hearts so that we might truly find love. God's wisdom guards our hearts so that we might truly find love. 
And so let's pray that we find it as we look at our text. So please read along with me. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. It says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you wake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Chapter 7. My son, Keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple... I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let your heart turn aside to, uh, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chamber of death. Now, last week, we spent our time together seeking to answer one question from this text. And we spent most of our time in chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, and chapter 7, verses 10 through 21. And that one question that we sought to answer is this. Why is sexual sin so appealing? Why is it so seductive? Why does it seem to ensnare just the whole world and people are giving themselves over to it? And we determined that there were two answers given. The first one is that it feeds, it plays upon our God-given desires for love and for intimacy, for sex and for beauty. I mean, we realize that from one, to one degree or another, we all have this longing. There's this longing within each and every single human heart to delight in intimacy, both body and soul with another. It's foundational to who we are. We looked at Genesis chapter 2 very briefly and saw we were made this way. We were made not to live in autonomous isolation, but together in intimate fellowship. We are not to live at a distance from one another, but in nearness. We're not to withhold ourselves and to hide our hearts from one another, but we were meant to hold and to be held. But the second answer, why sexual sin is so appealing and we saw it largely in this text, is that it preys upon our sinful desires. Things like physical lust, pride, passive pleasure, escape, secrecy, false intimacy, and coveting what is forbidden. Those were the seven hooks of sexual sin that we looked at last week. That's what this adulteress is using to lure this foolish young man into her bed. Now, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that sermon, let me just encourage you to go to our website or to our podcast and listen to that. And here's why. So often we think that the primary pull towards sexual sin is physical lust and physical lust only. And that's just not true. In fact, most of the time, it's other things. Sure, that's a part of it. But what we see here is this, this woman's using seven different lures to attract this man in. And we need to know. We need to understand our hearts, okay? Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in her bed. We're going to find ourselves being drawn to go near her house, to give ourselves away. But we also need to know and understand our hearts in order that we might be freed from this trap of sexual sin. I'm sure that there are some of you here that are thinking this fight is hopeless. I am doomed to live this way forever. That is just not true. You feel that way because you don't know your own heart and you don't know the power of Christ towards it. And so we need to seek to understand so that we might be able to find our heart's true longing and the only place where it can truly, truly be satisfied. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to answer two more questions. First, what does sexual sin actually result in? I mean, she holds out all of these promises to us, but what does it actually produce? 
And the second question, where can we turn to find our heart's true desires? And so first, what does sexual sin actually result in? Now, fortunately for us, we, we have our good father, Solomon, here. In verses 6 through 9, we see that him being a faithful father takes us up to the window overlooking the streets so that we can observe the story of seduction from a safe vantage point. We're looking down upon it so that hopefully we can learn from it, we can glean wisdom so that we don't find ourselves on that same street on that same corner, being tempted to turn into her house. Now, it's, it's pretty easy to see why this young man falls into temptation. I mean, look at it. I mean, here's a beautiful woman who is seducing him. She's flattering him with her words. She offers him without any expectation of commitment or effort on his part, this delicious feast, a relaxing and luxurious setting, erotic experiences. It's all there just waiting for him. And no one has to know. No one has to find out. This can be their little secret that they can keep to themselves. She's even made her sacrifices and vows to God. And so she foolishly believes that she can pay God off and that God will not hold this sin against them. She offers him intimacy without the need to share life or to love sacrificially or to disclose their hearts, a secret place where they can delight themselves in forbidden love all night long. Let me ask you something. Who wouldn't want to be made to feel so special? Who wouldn't want a beautiful person to offer them so much? Who wouldn't want to escape from the hardships and just insanity of life just for a night to enjoy a little pleasure and comfort? Who doesn't want to experience intimacy with another person? Who wouldn't be tempted to give themselves to it if they believed that they wouldn't be held responsible, if they wouldn't get caught, if it wouldn't really hurt anyone else? And let's be honest with ourselves here for a minute. Who isn't just a little bit intrigued by the offer of something that you're told that you simply cannot do? You see, that's what sexual sin does. That's what it promises to us. It entices us with physical beauty and the hope of sexual gratification. It strokes our pride, making much of us. We get to be the center, the hero, and everything goes according to our script. We get to be made to feel desirable and worth more than other people. It promises pleasure without personal commitment or cost. It offers escape and reward and comfort. It allures us with a pledge of secrecy and intimacy without disclosure. And it grabs our hearts with the thought of being able to experience for forbidden pleasures. And friends, these are the lures that ensnare not just men, but women as well. Right? This is not every man's battle or only man's battle. I hope you did not walk away last week thinking that. Right? Just because it's a father addressing his son doesn't mean that, oh, women, you're off the hook here. You got a freebie. All right? 
Because all of these same lures are at play. They just look a little different for men than they do for women. Perhaps the bigger lures, the bigger draws for women are pride and false intimacy. This guy makes me feel so special. He cherishes me. He loves me. I feel so secure and safe in his arms. I feel like I'm the only person that ever exists in his mind. And so I'm willing to give myself away to him because I want intimacy. I want that nearness. I want to feel that way. You see, it's there. How do I know that it's there? Well, unmarried men aren't just having sex with themselves. The majority of sensual images that we see in ads or on screens are of women. Now that's, of course, because men want it, but it's also because women are willing to give it. Heterosexual adultery requires two willing partners of the opposite sex. Now I don't say this because I'm pointing the finger at women here. I'm only saying this because clearly something is enticing them to do what they're doing. Something is drawing them, right? They made a decision, a conscious decision to do what they're doing. Because something is pulling at their hearts. There's some longing and desire that led them to make the choice that they did to give themselves away. Maybe that's going a little too far with their high school boyfriend. Or longing for something so, so deeply that you actually find yourself out there on the corner in the twilight in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, dressed like a prostitute, why leave heart? Something, no matter who they are, is pulling them towards that. And though this woman in this passage is presented as a huntress, and she is. I mean, she's carefully laid a trap. She's wily of heart. She is bold and forward. She lays herself out there as bait. She seizes him and kisses him and seduces him with her smooth words. She is on the prowl, and many are laid low by her ways. She is clearly a huntress. Let's not forget this. She wasn't always that way. You know, she used to be somebody's little girl. She used to be pure and innocent. She used to delight in the things that please God. But something happened. Something changed. Perhaps it was men. It's snared by the trap of sexual sin that took advantage of her. They used her and abused her. She feels like she's worth nothing. Perhaps in her own longing for all of those promises, she gave herself away, little by little, moment by moment, through modesty, through flirting, trying to please her boyfriend physically. But now here she is, it's, it's years and years later, and this huntress is ensnared by the very same trap that she has set for this foolish young man. She has bought into all the lies. This is now what she lives for. This is what she now loves. This is what she worships in her heart. Friends, do not dismiss her. Do not cast her aside as some wicked woman. 
men and women both, see yourself in the huntress. Look at her as a mirror for your own soul. Don't dismiss her as a loose woman or a prostitute. Don't think to yourself, you know what? That could never, ever be me. Because here's why. No one starts out in life or wakes up one morning and decides, you know what? I feel like committing a little adultery today. I think I'm just going to go out and I'm going to break my marital covenant. I'm going to seduce me some young fool. No one starts out doing that. Instead, she's given herself over. She's out there because she's fallen prey to those desires. Little by little, decision after decision, moment by moment, until finally she is ensnared. She has been swallowed up. And she's now living to find her identity in passion and sensuality. And though she would say that she worships God, I mean, after all, she made her sacrifices and vows, the reality is she's worshiping relationships. She's worshiping risky behavior. But she's longing, this whole time she's longing for love and for intimacy and approval. But now it's so twisted and it's so corrupted that she is, but she's just been so use that the only way that she can see herself as being worth anything is if she can coax some low life in for the night by giving herself and all of her riches away to some selfish and undeserving prick who's going to be gone in the morning. That's what she's reduced to. And as her shame and her dissatisfaction in trying to find her identity in one worthless relationship after another, her heart hardens to the point at which the prey now becomes the predator. She has been so scarred, so calloused that she now delights in slaying a mighty throng. She is what happens when we give ourselves over to sin, when we make those desires, even for good things like relationships and love and intimacy, into ultimate things that usurp God in our hearts. We give ourselves away, little by little, and we become predators ourselves who delight in leading others astray. We not only give ourselves over to the sinful desires of our hearts, but as Romans chapter 1 verse 31 says, we give approval to those who practice the very same things. Friends, we are the huntress. Maybe, maybe you're not as far down that road, but she's there in all of us. And you need to see her. So that's who she is. We, we've seen her trap. We've seen what she has to offer. We've seen who she really is. She is someone so caught up in sinful desires that she should be both pitied and feared. But let's turn our attention now to her prey. Now, he seems like a virile and attractive young man. I mean, clearly this woman thought that he was desirable and worthy of her love and luxury, 
This is what the world tells us that every young man should aspire to. This is Mr. GQ right here. This Prince Charming simply walks to a corner and without saying a single word, a wealthy and attractive woman is swooning over him. She is offering him the very best that the world has to offer for a little no-commitment, erotic excitement. This is the epitome of what the world tells us a man should be. But what does God call him? Verse 7. He's simple. He's a young man lacking sense. He's a dim-witted fool. Mr. GQ, yeah, sure. Mr. GQ is so bright that he was ensnared by some eyelashes. There's a man for you. Real virile, real powerful. I mean, it, it, it wasn't an army that seized him. He wasn't ambushed by a violent band of marauders. He wasn't tricked by some elaborate ploy of political espionage. He didn't fall through a trap door into a dungeon or have some gigantic iron cage drop down on top of him. What did he do? He got tricked by some eyelashes. It's a mighty man, man of mans. We should all aspire to be like him. You know, this made me think about Samson, right? Samson, what are you doing, dude? You, you, you can kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. You have the power to pull down a temple by its pillars, and yet you're so stupid that you allow Delilah to seduce you into tying you up on three different occasions. That third time, she cuts your hair, so you lose your power and die. Wow, we should all aspire to be like him. Is this what it means to be a man? No. You see, this young man is a fool because he doesn't truly understand his heart. He doesn't really know what lures him towards sexual sin. He just gives himself right over to it. Perhaps in his pride, he, he thinks to himself, you know what, I can go near her house in the twilight and the darkness of night and, and not, not be tempted by it. I, I won't fall prey to her, her seduction. Perhaps he didn't realize just how dangerous sexual sin really is, how ensnaring, how destructive. Perhaps he didn't realize that he was being hunted and that underneath all of those promises of pleasure, a trap was waiting for him. And we would foolishly like to believe that there's no such thing as sin, that there are no consequences for immorality, there's no standard of right and wrong that we can transgress, that no one's really going to be hurt by what we're doing. It's just you and me and the way that we feel. We'd like to believe that everyone is basically good, that we're not sinners, that we don't have this bent to try to live without God as if this is my world and I'm God. We'd like to believe that every affection or every longing of the heart is right just because we feel it. That every appetite that we experience is excellent and must be satisfied. That everything that is pleasurable must be enjoyed. But friends, the truth is very, very different. And what's even worse is that at every moment we are being hunted 
We're being hunted by the world, being hunted by the devil. We are being hunted by our own sinful flesh. Every moment before our eyes, in our ears, and even in our own hearts and our own minds, there are traps lying in wait for us to capture us, to ensnare us, to lead us down this way of death. And the young man's problem is that he fails to recognize that, and it kills him. I mean, just look at the kill. Look at the outcome here. Chapter 6, verses 26 through 35, provides us with a lot of straightforward common sense. We ought to just kind of know this automatically. In verse 26, it says, For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Now, the language here is a little difficult. It could mean, look, paying for a prostitute, as bad as that is, only costs about a loaf of bread, but you, get, you tick off an adulteress and she's going to kill you. It's going to cost you your life. But if Solomon is basically calling the adulteress a loose woman, so the, basically the woman from the second half is the woman from the first half, then it could be saying that she will reduce you to the loaf of bread, meaning That's all that you will be worth. Either way, neither of them are good options, right? Neither of them are pleasant. In verses 27 through 29, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Well, the answer to both of those questions is an obvious no. And so why on earth would you try to do that? Why would you ever, ever do that? Now, if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, uh, you know, if I had a fire retardant suit and maybe if I spent time with those firewalker guys, I'd be able to do that. You know, I'm like, sorry, man, I'm not going to argue with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go grab a lighter. I'm going to set your shirt on fire and then we can argue. Because here's the reality. You don't have a fire retardant suit. You haven't spent time with firewalkers. And even if you're tempted to do that, even if you have it, why? Why on earth? What does that say about your heart? Well, I've got the fire retardant suit because I want to get as close to the fire as I possibly can and not be burned. What does that tell you about your intentions? What does that tell you about your motives? What does that tell you about what you want? You see, you're condemned anyway. So the answer is an obvious no. So why would you do that? Verse 29, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. See, there it is. You're going to get burned. In verses 30 through 32, it says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. What he's saying here is, look, we can understand why someone who is hungry might steal to satisfy his appetite for food. He needs food to live. We don't despise him for that. And yet, if he gets caught, he's going to have to pay sevenfold. He's going to give away all the goods of his house. How much worse is it for someone who commits adultery? Because that's a desire that does not need to be satisfied. And so if you steal from another in that area, you are destroying yourself. It doesn't make any sense. 
Verse 33. He will get wounds and dishonor. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. You know, even with forgiveness and reconciliation, it's even though God is so merciful with us and he showers upon us grace upon grace upon grace, he redeems, he restores, he forgives. Even though God is so merciful in all of those ways, sin creates a scar that you will carry your entire life. I have a scar right here on my wrist from where my hand went through a plate glass window. And it went through a plate glass window because I was angry. And I shoved my arm through that plate glass window. And I have the scar to prove it. It stays with you. It's a reminder to me of what anger gets me. Though Paul was miraculously saved by grace became an apostle of Christ Jesus. At the end of his life, he still called himself the chief of sinners because he had persecuted the church. You see, he always remembered who he was. Always remembered what he had done. And though godly sorrow leads to repentance without regret, there is still a scar of sin not only as a reminder of the pain and hurt and foolishness that you have caused, but also, and listen here, it is evidence of God's healing grace. You know, I often think about who I want to be when I get old. I care about what my kids and grandkids are going to view me as. I, I and, and it motivates me for the way I live today because I, I want to look like this to them. And so today, I want to take advantage of that. I want to be about the things today that I want them to value, that I want to communicate to them when I'm their grandfather. And it might sound silly, but, you know, one of the reasons why I was never really tempted to get a tattoo is because I always thought to myself, you know, what's that going to be like when I'm 70, right? Am I going to think that that's cool? What is that going to look like, you know, when my skin is like all saggy and wrinkly? You know, you can't even read the words anymore. That, that heart that used to appear on a, on a really, really, you know, defined bicep now looks like a prune. Perhaps that would be fitting for a 70-year-old. I don't know. And in the same way, I don't want to stain on my family legacy to be that grandpa was unfaithful to grandma. Grandpa was the one that committed adultery. See, though there's healing and there's forgiveness and there's love and there's acceptance, I don't want my kids or my grandkids to learn about adultery and unfaithfulness because of me. I don't want those scars. I don't want that dishonor, that disgrace, that to wound them in that way. And nor do I want to offend my fellow man. I don't want to do that because I I don't want to do that to that person's spouse. I mean, look there at verses 34 and 35. It says, for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. 
This man has a right to be angry. You stole and you soiled his wife. Don't be surprised if he comes after you and you are unable to dissuade him or pay him off. He could kill you. And as much as we would like to believe that because it's consensual, a little secret that we're keeping just between us and it's mutual, it's agreed upon, that it's not really going to harm anyone. And we act surprised that people are hurt by our sin. They get upset and angry and jealous for what is rightfully theirs. As if because you love one another, that man's anger is somehow unjustified. No. You have broken the vow that they made before God and each other. They belong to each other. You've stolen that. And though that doesn't make his actions acceptable, yours clearly are not. And so don't be surprised if he comes looking for revenge. Because even if it's consensual, it strikes against God's design for how mankind was created to live together. Whether you keep it hidden in the darkness or not, Our sin deeply hurts, wounds, affects, and angers others. As it should be. But the gravest warning is actually given in chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Where it says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Will you be strong but gullible like an ox? Noble but helpless like a stag in a trap? Swift but impetuous like a bird that flies straight into the snare. They die because they are foolish. They are unaware that what they are doing is going to kill them. Verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You see, to turn your heart in her direction is to turn your heart away from God. Keep your eyes focused on him so that you will not stray, even by accident, onto her paths. Keep far away from her. She has leveled armies. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are going to be the one, the one that helps her to give up her ways, or the one that that is truly able to satisfy him like no one else ever could, or that you could be the one that she has been waiting for, or that you could be the one who can save him. You cannot do that. Only Christ can do that. If they are unfaithful to God, 
They are unfaithful to their spouse. They are unfaithful to a countless multitude that they have laid low. Then apart from the redeeming work of Christ in them that frees them from this snare of death, they will be unfaithful to you too. You will not save them. It will kill you. You will lie slain among the mighty throng. Like I said before, we turn to sexual sin, we turn to relationships because we're looking for love and identity, for acceptance, for pleasure, for paradise. When a young woman compromises in order to have a relationship, when a young man clicks on that link, when we take the road to the house of the adulterer, We are hoping that when they turn that doorknob and open the door, what they're doing is opening the door to heaven to us. They're opening a gate to paradise. But what we find is that when we cross the threshold, we cross the threshold to the gates of hell. Instead of finding pleasure and acceptance and all of those things that we're longing for, we find only condemnation and death. Friends, let's not deceive ourselves here. Let's not justify our intentions or excuse our actions. Let us not minimize our sin in any way. So Ephesians chapter 5 makes it really clear to us. It says, for you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of of the light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Friends, that's what sexual sin actually does. Though it promises this pleasurable moment, it bars us eternally from the kingdom of God. Though it holds out this hope that we would have life What it does is hold us under God's wrath for sin. Instead of providing treasure and pleasure and all of those things that we think that we want, what it actually does is keeps us in darkness from walking in the light of Christ. But praise God that Christ's death satisfies God's wrath for sin. 
that his sacrifice opens to us the kingdom of heaven. It frees us not just from the penalty, but from the power of sin in our lives. It exposes our sin to the light so that we might awake from the dead and find the glory of Christ shining upon us. And that leads us into the second question from this text. Where can we turn to find our heart's true desires? Friends, I want you to understand this. The fact that we can hear these words, the fact that we can receive this wisdom is a good thing. And even if you are experiencing conviction right now, that you can barely lift your eyes and you are beating your chest because you feel so unworthy right now, friends, that conviction that you are experiencing is a grace of God in your life. It proves that no matter who you are and no matter what you have done, that there is hope for you yet, that you can still heed these words, that the Holy Spirit is revealing areas of sin in your heart and he's seeking to apply the truth of the gospel to it so we can take delight in that. We can take comfort in that. We can still respond to truth. We still have time to learn God's wisdom for him to open our eyes and to change our hearts so that we might find true love and joy and satisfaction for our souls. Because you see, unlike the love offered through sexual sin, a love that destroys, a love that forsakes and corrupts and leads to death, God's love is a love that keeps. God's love is a love that remembers. God's love is a love that satisfies. God's love is a love that gives life. And it's right there in the words of the Father, chapter 6, verses 20 through 24. It says, my son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. You see, unlike the the smooth words of the adulteress, God's words keep, they preserve, they protect. And these aren't options. These aren't just good ideas. We've got to take wisdom and, and, and see it at a whole new level, right? Wisdom has authority. I mean, just look at what Solomon says here. He says, keep your father's commandment, forsake not your mother's teaching. Now, why could Solomon speak with such certainty, with such force, with such power? Well, it's because his commands and teachings are consistent with the will and ways of God who has made us, who has revealed that to him. See, God gave us his law. He gave us his wisdom. He gave us his teachings so that we might know who he is And so that we might live in unity with him as his people. We were made to image God, to reflect his nature, his character, his purposes, and his promises. And when we do that, when we live with him under his authority, it's then that we actually live life to its fullest. 
we actually live the lives that we were created to live. The lives that are going to bring us the most joy, the most satisfaction, that, that satisfy our longings the best. And when we come to understand that, then the commands and teachings are no longer seen as restrictive. They're seen as freeing. You know, a fish out of water is not free. A fish without the, in the bounds of water is. A fish out of the water dies. And the same is true for us. You know, when we live within the design and purposes of God for our lives, we are truly free. Truly free. When we rebel against God's design for us, we die. Like a fish that maroons itself on the beach. Sure, it seems pleasurable. But for a fish, a day in the sun on the beach means death outside of the life-giving waters of the ocean. But so often, you know, we forget that. We take our eyes off of it and we place them on lesser things, which is why Solomon calls us to keep and to not forsake. This is why we're called to bind them on our hearts always and tie them around our necks lest we give our hearts over to lesser things and we find a noose around our necks that kill us. If we do not keep God's words in front of us at all times, we will by nature drift away from it. Why we got to bind it to ourselves. When we do bind it to our hearts, when we do tie it around our necks, it says, when we walk, it will lead us. And when we lie down, it will watch over us. And when we awake, it will talk with us. Friends, did you hear that intimate relationship there? That when we commune with God, he will protect us at all times, day or night. He will always be with us, always leading us to wherever he wants us to go. He will speak tenderly to us. That nearness, that, that intimacy, that relationship that you're longing for is found. It's, I should say, it's not found on that internet site. It's not found in that bedroom. It's not found with that other person. It's found right there with God and his word. You see, to follow the world's or, or, or this adulteress's idea of love and intimacy, it's like putting on blinders. It's the blind leading the blind. It leads us only to darkness and to death. But God's commands, according to verse 23, are a lamp. His teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline that he gives to his children, even though they're not pleasant in the moment, even though we don't really want them, they are the way, not a way, but the way of life. You know, I can't read that and I can't not think of Christ. Revelation 21 verse 23 describes Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, to be the lamp of heaven. John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And just a few chapters later in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. And friends, he loved you so much that while you were still living as a whore and as a hater of God, he lived the life that you and I can never live. And he gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin. He rose again three days later so that all of those who would turn away from their sin and follow him by faith might live a new life. A life that is free, not just from the penalty, not just from the consequences of our sin, but from its power in our lives. He lives now in his followers through the Holy Spirit who dwells within each and every heart that leads us away from sin and to God until at last we, God's people, are made holy to live with God forever in His place under His rule and His blessing. Friends, do you realize that there is no image There is no relationship. There is no earthly paradise. There is no sexual liaison that can compare with that. Nothing. But part of our problem is that we, sometimes we we minimize, we reduce what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is more than accepting Jesus or praying a sinner's prayer. It's the joining of two into one. It's trust and surrender such that we give ourselves entirely to Christ like a bride gives herself entirely to her husband on their wedding night. You become joined with him so that his righteousness becomes yours. He gives himself completely to you by grace and you give yourself completely to him by faith. Not just in word only, but with your whole mind, with your whole heart, with your whole spirit, and with your whole body. This is what it means to be united in Christ. It's a marriage. You have been joined forever to the most loving, the most understanding, the most compassionate person in the universe. You cannot get more intimate than that. Friends, he loves you so much. He connects with you so intensely that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 says that he who is joined to Christ becomes one spirit with him. One spirit. That is far more profound, far more intimate, far deeper than becoming one flesh with your spouse. It's one spirit. And Paul wrote this to a bunch of sinful Christians just like you and me. And that is amazing. Now tell me, does that not stir your hearts with love for Christ? 
Does that not kindle a burning within your soul for him, a deep longing and a hunger that only he can satisfy? And so, what are we to do with that? We are to, as it says in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, keep my words and treasure up, treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple, as the center of your eye. See it and protect it the same way you would your pupils. Bind them on your fingers, always visible, touching everything that you do. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Praise God that this is his work by the Holy Spirit that is done within us. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And when it says sister there in verse 4, it is not speaking of a biological sibling, but the sister of Song of Solomon chapter 4, the lady wisdom. This is what a groom says to his bride, his dearest companion, his lover, his intimate friend. Know her, love her, delight in her more than anything else. When you love Christ, the embodiment of all of God's wisdom, deeply, he will keep you from the forbidden one with all of their smooth words. You see what Solomon is is telling us in light of all of Scripture, is to make Christ your treasure. Make Christ your first love. Long and live for Him. He is the only one that can bring true delight, true joy, true satisfaction to your souls. Friends, this is why we were given this wisdom. This is why we were given this wisdom word. Because God's wisdom guards our hearts so that we might truly find love in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and wonder of Christ. God, I pray that our hearts' longings would find their fulfillment in him that we would see that there is so much more to be lived for than what the world tells us is passion and pleasure. God, I pray that we would, would open our eyes to our sin, that we would not remain as fools who don't know our own hearts, but as you reveal them to us, I pray that we see your grace and your love for us in Christ. I pray that we would be amazed at just how much he loves us, that he would die for us while we were still haters and enemies and rebels and whores. God, I pray that you would stir within our hearts new affections like we've never experienced before for Christ. And that as we grow in our love for him, As we make him our treasure, we find all the treasures of the world as nothing. 
Would you do that in us? We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.